Welcome to countries that don't exist anymore. Last episode, we talked about the rise of Comancheria and their dominance, not only over other native peoples, but their repulsion of the Spanish Empire too. We also covered the general hostile stance of the Republic of Texas and the creation of Indian hunters to fight the Comanche on their own terms. But who will win? Millions of relentless Americans or a few thousand Comanche warriors? It's edge of your seat stuff. If you think the relentless Americans text probably to 82022. If you think the few thousand Comanche warriors text unlikely to 82023. Text a charger, two scalps per minute. If you get scalped, it's not the responsibility of this promotion or its subsidiaries. Countries that don't exist anymore, they used to exist but not anymore. Now you know what this podcast is for, it's countries that don't exist anymore. Now, initially raids against the Comanche were a bit of a disaster. With their Tonkawa or Apache guides, the Texans would go stumbling onto the high plains in search of the Comanche. Even if they found them, it wouldn't necessarily go well. There were times when the Texans were outnumbered and could have been obliterated by the Comanche. One of the things that saved them is that the Comanche weren't willing to throw everything and the kitchen sink at you. And if you want to win stuff, that's usually a good idea. If you should falter, remember that Captain Darling and I are behind you. About 35 miles behind you. (laughs) But that wasn't the Comanche. They weren't willing to throw lots of lives away taking a fortified position that they really could have taken. This was different from the Texan attitude. Unlike the Spanish that the Comanche had dealt with, the Texans were grizzled, tough, unstoppable, and overly optimistic about their chances. The Comanche couldn't understand why the Texans couldn't just draw a line and stay behind it. The Texans couldn't understand why the Comanche lived in teepees, took hostages and raped and mutilated captives. They thought that the solution to the Comanche was their total extermination. So to put it mildly, this was a clash of cultures. What really started the war happened on March 19th, 1840, during an event known as the Council House Fight. Council House Fight, or as we called it at school, break time. So the Council House fight started when a Comanche group came to San Antonio to trade, but brought with them a mutilated European captive. Now this enraged the Texans, who were not only pissed off at a bunch of filthy pagans abusing a good Christian white person, but were also angry at Comanche raids in general, not understanding that the Comanche weren't just one uniform people. They blamed this small group of Panatuka traders for attacks that were nothing to do with them. And this rage surprised the Comanche visitors to town. Am I then not popular? From their point of view, these were hostages after all. They'd been taken fair and square and they were now Comanche property. So it was a great surprise to the Comanche when the Texans attacked them, killed several important head warrior types and took the rest hostage. The Texans released one Comanche woman to demand the release of all Texan prisoners from the Comanche. Now, the reaction from the Comanche? Well, actually, you may think it was fury, but actually the Comanche were just greatly aggrieved at the loss of important headmen. 
Um, as was tradition, the horses that these men owned were then slaughtered. And later on, in fact, the US Army would kill Comanche horses en masse to cut off their source of wealth. All in all, it wasn't a particularly good time to be a horse. Yeah, but when has it been a good time to be a horse? Well, probably during the mega horse era of the Pleistocene. And let's not forget during the reign of Caligula, when his horse, Incitatus, achieved the highest ever political office achieved by a horse. Do you know what, Ed? I think a horse party leader would be a conservative. Hmm, why is that, Phil? Well, because his government would be strong and stables. Anyway, the captives the Texans wanted weren't sent back. They were instead barbecued until crispy and golden. The irony was that the Comanche who went to Santo Antonio actually advocated peace with the Texans. These were the peaceful faction of the Panatucas. Now, the Panatuca band were the Comanche band that already mixed with the Europeans. They didn't see their trip as a declaration of war. They were just popping into town with their families for a spot of trade, maybe a bite to eat, just enough time to pop to the post office. And the Panatuca headmen who were killed generally pushed for peace. Whereas the others back in Comancheria, like Pahayuko, Old Owl, Little Wolf and Buffalo Hump, were already less inclined to talk peace. They had been more hawkish among the Panatuka, and now their resolve had been strengthened. This is particularly true of Buffalo Hump, whose nomina name was Pochanaquahip, or Erection That Won't Go Down. He was always ready for action. Why, oh why, didn't I take the blue pill? See, Buffalo Hump had a plan. While the Texans wanted to extend Texas to the Pacific, he wanted to drive the Texans into the Gulf of Mexico. So he gathered a thousand Comanche to go campaigning, consisting of 400 warriors and 600 camp followers. During 1840, Buffalo Hump, aka Chief Viagra, went on the rampage. Settlements were raided, hostages were taken, and horses were horsenapped. But Sort of achieving his aims, Buffalo Hump did get down to Linville on the coast of Texas, and the occupants did indeed flee into the sea, many escaping by ship. But Linville was a port full of warehouses loaded with great merch, and the Panatuka band were so delighted with what they found that they dressed themselves up in top hats, pantaloons, and other finery. They also loaded up loads of stolen horses with all manner of merch, as well as taking hostages. Their gain was obviously the resident of Linville's loss. Mrs Watts, the unlucky wife of the unluckier murdered customs inspector, was only saved from abuse when Comanche warriors couldn't work out how to take off her whalebone corset. She was loaded up on a horse anyway. This same corset later also deflected an arrow, and she was eventually able to escape, only suffering minor sunburn. You always hear about the drawbacks of whalebone corsets, long-term health conditions, female suppression, whale murder, etc. But you never hear about the many benefits. You know, maybe it's time we had a fresh look at whalebone corsets. The problem with armies weighed down with plunder is that they're easy targets. A force of 125 Texans decided to ambush the loot-heavy convoy, but they made a bit of a mess of it when they decided to dismount from their horses to fight the Comanche. 
as we've learned by now, this is a terrible mistake against such fearsome light cavalry. Luckily for the Texans, the Comanche seemed more interested in holding onto their loot than slaughtering white men that day, so the Texans escaped relatively unscathed. The Texans had a better go when 200 of them tracked down the Comanche convoy just south of present-day Austin. The Texans made the same blunder again by dismounting and forming up for battle. They seemed to be at the mercy of the whirling Comanche cavalry until a lucky shot felled one of the Comanche chiefs who got too close. Predictably, the loss of their chief sent the Comanche into disarray, and this prompted an Indian hunter among them to order a mounted charge, scattering their enemy and killing 25 Comanche in the process. The Battle of Plum Creek, as it became known, was lauded as a great victory for the Indian hunters. In reality, the Comanche were probably more interested in securing their horses than staying to fight, but it reinforced two important lessons. One. The Comanche were predictable, kill their leader, often seen as imbued with magical powers, and they'd lose their will to fight. Two. Always fight on horseback. We can't state that enough. But that said, most of the killed Comanche actually happened at the hands of the Tonkawa, who bitterly hated the Comanche and badly wanted their scalps. Generally speaking, the Tonkawa were pretty scalp-hungry and axe-happy, and the policy of the Texans was... Hey, you shouldn't do that. Why, that ain't civilised behaviour. I didn't say stop and further Comanche blood was shed when Colonel John Moore took 90 Texans and 12 Apache 300 miles into Comancheria to surprise and slaughter 130 Comanche, mainly women and children. This was something the Spanish would have never done. What, massacred women and children? Uh, no, move 300 miles in any particular direction. Um, Ed, you do know that the Spanish Empire conquered about 15% of the globe. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is true. Um, but they, they didn't have the same get-up-and-go attitude as we British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fancy heading out? Nah, it's raining. Stick the kettle on, will ya? Well, last week you said you didn't want to go out either. But it was 25 degrees Celsius. It was murder. Between 1836 to 1840, the Panatuka lost a quarter of their fighting force. But this wasn't from the Texan threat. This was actually more of a result of smallpox and syphilis picked up on their habitual raids into Mexico. And to this day, Mexico is still annually invaded by hordes of rowdy Americans who often return with syphilis. This is true. And it wasn't just syphilis. In 1849, a cholera epidemic started in India, made its way through Europe and spread via the gold rush wagons into Comancheria, killing mere hours after its first infection. But a new fighting force to be reckoned with was now squaring up against the Comanche, the Texas Rangers. Who were the Texas Rangers? The Texas Rangers were created in 1835 at the same time as the movement for independence was reaching boiling point in Texas. They were a force of men created to both fight Mexicans and Native Americans. 600 were commissioned by the Texas Congress, but in reality only 50 to 100 initially existed. 
pretty much all in their 20s and having to furnish their own supplies. As rubbish a job prospect as this seems, the role of the Texas Ranger promised adventure on the frontier. And these tough, rugged, brave young men were slaughtered. In 1839, there were 149 serving rangers. The Comanche were said to have killed 100 of them. The rangers were only finally whipped into shape thanks to famous and fearless ranger Captain John Coffey Hayes. He assembled a bunch of tough desperados like Bigfoot Wallace, Old Paint Coldwell and Alligator Davis. Bigfoot was called that because of his size, Old Paint because of his strange skin conditions, and Alligator because he once wrestled an alligator. Wow. And why did they call him Coffeehead? Was it because he was strong and black? No, it's because one of his relatives had the surname Coffee, so he had it too. Oh, that's disappointing. Hayes taught his men to fight like Comanche. They all had to learn to fire with pinpoint accuracy on horseback as well as imitating Comanche tricks, like sliding down in their saddle and using their horses to shield their body during a fight. Hayes knew that the rangers were at a shooting disadvantage, so attacks came from ambushes and at night, and night attacks were a Comanche favourite. In fact, in Texas, a blood-red full moon is still known as a Comanche moon. The Comanche seemed particularly susceptible to surprise attacks and could scatter when panicked, and Hayes was all about that surprise attack. He thought little of attacking a Comanche band of 200 warriors with 20 Texas Rangers. Hayes was certainly brave and audacious, but he knew that the Comanche were deeply religious and would react in predictable ways. So he saw himself as less ballsy and more about playing the percentages. The Texas Rangers also picked up tricks from the native guides. Want to follow a Comanche war party? Just look for vultures trailing their moving camps. Hayes' Rangers caught up with a war party in 1841. The Comanche warriors withdrew to a thicket, rendering their arrows useless. Hayes then had the thicket surrounded and starved them out, shooting any Comanche that tried to escape and methodically butchering the rest. Their fate was inevitable. The still only 25-year-old Hayes reported. They saw it and met it like heroes. 25? I mean, that's young. I mean, what what were you doing, Phil, at 25? Oh, well, I think I was... Just getting into the first season of Breaking Bad. Yeah, no, that that, that sounds about right. Um, I was actually writing TV listings in a horrible building in West London and dreaming big dreams. Yeah, what, of becoming a historical entertainment podcaster? Oh, good God, no. Now, although Hayes was having success against the Comanche, it should be noted that he was one man who commanded a handful of rangers. The Texas rangers weren't exactly taking it to the Comanche at this time. Even when mounted, they were still at a firing disadvantage. But technology changed all that. In 1838, the first Colt revolving pistol was manufactured. And it was going to be a game changer. Except no one knew that yet. The first Colt revolvers were fragile, underpowered, and were totally inaccurate unless you were at a very close range. And this excited precisely no one. The US Army didn't want them. It was in fact the US Navy that bought some and these gathered dust until the Texas Rangers somehow got their hands on them in 1843. You know those um, Wild West movies with cowboys firing their pistols from horseback? As far as we know, the Texas Rangers invented all of that. 
and also maybe spitting tobacco at dogs' heads, Phil? I don't know. Other things they invented. Into a bucket normally, I think. Yeah, into a bucket. Ding! Texas Ranger Samuel Hamilton Walker called the revolver the most perfect weapon in the world for mounted troops. Except he then went and found a nearly bankrupt Colt and had him redesign it and uh, make it a more powerful six-shooter. And maybe the most famous weapon in the West was born. So the Rangers got the revolver, and it was game over for Comancheria, right? Well, no. Coffee Hayes showed the Rangers how to fight the Comanche, but this didn't mean everyone was paying attention. In 1849, he retired from the Rangers and moved to California. Hearing the news about this, we're told that Buffalo Hunt met Hayes to wish him well, and Hayes named his first son John Buffalo Hump Jr. Hayes in the chief's honour. Now, whether that's what exactly happened or not, who knows? People sure love those stories of mutual respect of great warriors. This is indeed an honour. How often I have rehearsed this moment of destiny in my dreams. The valour we to encapsulate. The unspoken nobility of our comradeship. In fact, with Hayes retired, the Texas Rangers seemed to get less effective. They were famously drunk and disorganised, as likely to kill each other in Wild West-style brawls, as by the Comanche. Well, read them and weep, gentlemen. I got four aces. Well, I got five aces. Well, I got six aces. Hey, we're playing backgammon, you goddamn cheater. were sober enough to finally enter Comancheria, they invariably had their horses stolen from them by the Comancheria and had to walk home, presumably in their pants with their penises glued to a traffic cone. Or the Comanche would burn areas of foliage so the rangers had nothing to feed their horses and we need to go home. And if there was a time when the Texas rangers really needed to get their acts together, it was during the 1850s and 60s, when the attacks by the Comanche were increasingly more frequent. And these attacks were frequently more targeted and brutal. On one occasion, a pregnant woman was raped, beaten and scalped while still alive. So what was going on? The context of this was the spread of Texas frontiers into Comancheria. In 1836, the population of Texas was 15,000. By 1860, that had increased 40 times to over 600,000 people. And these weren't people who lived in small, overpriced city centre flats. These were people who expected to have land to farm. And this meant moving into Comancheria en masse. In 1836, Texas had a few dirt roads for wagons. By 1860, this had extended into thousands of miles of road and 272 miles of railroad. 
Texas went from having three newspapers in 1836 to 71 in the 1860s, and you can bet that their headlines were all... Redskins, strike again! Now, contrast this with the Comanche population. By 1860, it's said that there were only 4,000 Comanche left in the world, from a peak of maybe 20,100 years before that. Because of these small numbers, the band system was starting to fragment, and the formerly snooty Comanche were even working with other Plains Indians to make the numbers up. During this time, Texas had become part of the USA, and rather than having a clear anti-Indian policy, Texas's policies were formulated in Washington, where the attitude to Native Americans was, well, contradictory at best. For one thing, the Office of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. decided that the reports of Indian attacks on whites were probably exaggerated and most likely the fault of white settlers in the first place. And if you're thinking... Classic white-hating elitist liberals. Think again. Or, Or maybe not entirely. I mean, they were definitely elitist. But their attitude came from the fact that they definitely thought whites were superior. It's just that Native Americans were either viewed as noble, prelapsarian savages or as good-natured children who needed the loving guidance of the great white father in Washington. Great white father? Yeah, the president. I am the chosen one. Of course, the Comanche were none of the above. They were brutal, violent, but sophisticated human beings and were fully aware that their homeland was being taken away from them bite by bite. But while no white settlers deserve to get brutalised or murdered for just setting up house somewhere, this was really a failure of government. They had signed countless treaties with Native Americans that the government had either broken, were ignored by other areas of local government, or were just incredibly disadvantaged to Native Americans in general. One thing that seems strange to the Plains tribe is that they signed treaties that kept them entering territory, yet white settlers seemed to stream relentlessly onto their hunting grounds. Seemed a bit unfair. What is the deal with us signing treaties that kept us from entering territory while settlers seem to stream relentlessly onto our hunting ground? Does Quillen Parchment mean nothing to these people? And for Native Americans, including the Comanche, that did sign treaties, this often meant going onto reservations, which often meant poor quality, limited land. For food, reservation Indians often relied on rancid rations provided by the Office of Indian Affairs, which was highly corrupt and a huge embezzler of funds made available for Native Americans. Surprise, surprise. Also, these reservations were surrounded by white settlements. Reservation peoples were commonly ripped off by merchants and con men who sold them poor quality tat and gut rot whiskey at a terrible exchange rate. And when a free tribe raided elsewhere, well, reservation Indians were the easy target for revenge attacks. So you probably couldn't blame the last portion of Comanche that wanted to stay wild and free. But what were the US authorities doing to curtail the Comanche threat? Well, fortunately for the Comanche, sort of bugger all. 
On the plus side for settlers, they had built a line of forts to disrupt Comanche raiding parties, or at least in theory. On the minus side, the US sent some of their dragoons, who knew rather more about sword polishing and moustache maintenance than they did about fighting Comanche. They were basically just some very foppish-looking infantry on horses. One Texas ranger commented that... The only way one of these fellows would be useful was if the Indians saw them and laughed themselves to death. But the Texas Rangers had a second wind under John Salmon Rip Ford. Huh. Did they call him Rip because he liked transferring files from CD to MP3 on his desktop? No, it's... It, huh. it, well, it, you know, the reason is it's said that Ford was in charge of sending postcards announcing the death of soldiers to their families uh, during the Mexican Wars. Originally, he wrote Rest in Peace, but after a while, it hurt his hand, so he just wrote Rip. Sounds lazy? Well, during the Mexican-American Wars, the Americans lost 13,200 soldiers, or 17% of their armed forces, which is higher than in World War I and World War II. So you can see why Rip started using shorthand. But the thing about Rip Ford was that he was by no means an Indian hater. In fact, there were even instances of him intervening when white lynch mobs went to do justice to reservation peoples. He didn't hate the Comanche, he was just tired of their raids and the federal government's inaction. So, in 1858, with funding from the Texas Congress, Rip Ford assembled 100 Texas Rangers and 113 Tonkawa and Shawnee, generally recruited from reservations. He moved into Comancheria, posting scouts in a 20-mile radius and sleeping at night without campfires. He met a Comanche force at the Battle of Antelope Hills. The Comanche were led by a medicine man called Iron Jacket, who wore an ancient piece of Spanish armour that he had magicked into being immune to bullets. This worked until he died from... Um, ingrowing toenail? No, too many bullets. Uh, yeah. In classic Comanche style, the war party scattered at the felling of their leader. And it seemed that the lessons learned by Coffee Hayes had been relearnt by the new Texas Rangers. Sam Houston stood on the floor of the US Senate and said, Give us 1,000 Rangers and we will be responsible for the defence of our frontier. The US Army followed this by sending a force of 3,000 against Buffalo Hump's band in 1860. Now, they weren't hard to find since Buffalo Hump had just concluded a treaty with another part of the US Army and thought he had no reason to hide. They were also attacked at dawn while still asleep. Although marked down as a great victory, the Battle of Pease River was really more of a slaughter. One soldier, H.B. Rogers, later said, I am not very proud of it. That was not a battle at all, but just a killing of squaws. One of the captives released after Pease River was Cynthia Ann Parker with her daughter Prairie Flower, who we kind of covered uh, in the first episode. She was quote-unquote saved when her husband, Petter Ninoka, was killed and her young sons fled. The recapturing of the white squaw caused quite the sensation. Though Cynthia despised her new life and tried to escape whenever the opportunity presented itself. She was such a draw for slack-jawed yokels that she was briefly put on display with a rope tied around her ankle to stop her from escaping. A relative of hers described the tears streaming down her face 
and she was muttering in the Indian language. She refused to embrace her new life and was subsequently shipped around between family members. In 1864, her one reason for submitting to her new life, her daughter Prairie Flower, died of influenza and pneumonia. Her relative, Tom Champion, who spoke the Shoshone language, said, To hear her tell of the happy days of the Indian dances and see the excitement and pure joy on her face, the memory of it, I am convinced that the white people did more harm by keeping her away from them than the Indians did by taking her first. Anyway, back to the frontier. The Civil War interrupted a pattern of relentless Western migration and a tougher and tougher time for the Comanche. Rangers and fort defenders alike went off to fight for the Confederacy or the Union. It might be expected that the Comanche would have gone on full revenge mode against white settlements since the defenders were away, but in fact they did what they had done for hundreds of years, i.e. give other native peoples a hard time. Crammed into Indian country in Oklahoma, the farms and houses of the Chickasaws, Chocotaws and Creeks were the targets of Comanche raids, and the Tonkawas, who had been scouts for the despised Texans, also got particular attention. In 1864, Comanche war parties finally went to war against the white world, attacking settlements and pretty much closing down the Santa Fe Trail. In fact, across America, the frontier was rolling back by up to 200 miles, as other groups such as the Cheyenne took advantage of war conditions to send the white man packing. In October 1864, 700 Comanche and Kiowa warriors sacked a town of 60 houses, and when a local militia group was sent against them, they spotted 300 mounted warriors and thought better of it. For the first time in many generations, the Comanche had something like a numerical advantage in battle, and this scenario played itself out several times as they took horses and livestock, killed people and carried off captives. But none of this was just about settlements anymore. Texas has since become cattle country. In 1850, there were 10,000 cattle in Texas. Ten years later, that number was four to five million heads of cattle. And these cows were often being grazed in the pastures of Comancheria. This presented the Comanche with an opportunity that was too good to pass up. They became expert cattle rustlers. In one year, the Comanche stole over 300,000 cattle, generally selling them to the Comancheros, who would then generally sell them to the US government contractors in New Mexico, who would then sell them to the US Army, who would often then have these cattle stolen by the Comanche. This mass cattle theft was so profitable, it actually had American citizens investing money in the trade. In exchange for the cattle, the Comanche also got their hands on revolvers and carbines, as well as goods such as kettles, cooking tools, sugar, coffee, whiskey, cotton shirts and blankets. As much as the Comanche hated the invasion of the relentless white settlers, they too were slowly being Americanized. But in 1867, the US government realised it had to do something about the wild Indians of the plains and so called a meeting of tribal representatives from the Comanche, Cheyenne, Arafo, Kiowa and Kiowa Apache at Medicine Lodge, Kansas. 
It was said to have been the last meeting of free Indians in the American West. After gift-giving and displays of horsemanship, the gathered Native Americans were told that they had disappointed the great white father with their actions and they would be taught to live on farms, be civilised and read. In an epic moment, Comanche chief Ten Bears, who was portrayed opposite Clint Eastwood and the outlaw Josie Wales, stood up and responded... You have said that you want to put us on a reservation, to build us houses and put us in medicine lodges. I do not want them. I was born under the prairie, where the wind blew free and there was nothing to break the light of the sun. I was born where there are no enclosures and everything drew a free breath. I want to die there and not within walls. When I was in Washington, the Great Father told me that all the Comanche land was ours and that no one should hinder us in living upon it. If the Texans had kept out of my country, there might have been peace. But it is too late. The whites have the country that we loved, and we wish only to wander on the prairie until we die. To this, one General William Sherman simply said... You can no more stop this than you can stop the sun or the moon. You must submit and do the best you can. So most of the assembled relented and signed the contract. For those Comanche that submitted and went to the reservation, they found out that they had been supplied with no food, even though winter was setting in. Their solution? They went and raided neighbouring reservations for food. When supplies finally arrived, the food was rotten. Unimpressed with this, the Comanche on reservations decided on a new course of action. During the winter, they would stay on their reservations and claim their government subsistence. But as soon as spring came round, they would go back to tracking buffalo and raiding. And this wasn't a bad compromise for them, since if they were caught raiding, a new treaty would be made with them, invariably supplying them with food and weapons. In the words of Laurie Tatum, a Quaker government agent, The easiest route for the Comanche to get anything was to go on the warpath a while, kill a few white people, steal a good many horses and mules, and then make a treaty. And then they would get a large amount of presents and a liberal supply of goods. So everything's going the Comanche's way, right? Well, it sort of sounds like they're getting the best of both worlds here, but that was never really going to last. You see, if the repeating revolver finally put US soldiers on par with Comanche infantry, a new breed of repeating rifles gave them a huge advantage. In a famous fight of 1874, Comanche warriors, who were meeting to plan a strategy away from the main fight, were being picked off from up to three quarters of a mile away by sharpshooters with their powerful new rifles. And it wasn't just Comanche either. These long-range, quick-loading weapons allowed a new breed of buffalo men to start clearing the prairie of these once numerous and mighty beasts. See, the problem with buffalo is that they don't stampede unless they can see the danger. So, even as other buffaloes were dropping dead around them from long-range bullets, they'd carry on grazing, making them ridiculously easy to kill and sell their hides as high-grade leather. One buffalo man shot 120 buffalo in 40 minutes. Between 1868 to 1881, the buffalo men killed 31 million buffalo using the new railroad to export the carcasses to urban markets. 
But there was no moral uproar about this. Even among people who weren't hostile to the Plains Indian, the general consensus was remove the buffalo and you get the Indians off the plains. But there was one last main Comanche holdout, Kwana, of the Kahadi people. In later years, he became known as Kwana Parker. He was the son of Petter Norcona, Comanche headman, and Cynthia Ann Parker, Texan captive. He hated the white man. In fact, it was partly his white blood that made it difficult for him to gain acceptance, even among the Comanche. But he was tall and strong and an incredible fighter. He partnered with Isa Tai, a medicine man who not only claimed to be immune to bullets, they generally all did, but someone who could use his magic to send bad weather against his enemies. I summon the elements against thee. Take this, freezing hailstones driving from the north. Oh, pass me that newspaper. Oh, let's see. Classified. Yes, agony aunt. Now, where's that weather forecast? Uh, ah, ah, here we go. Due to manifest by next Wednesday. Next Wednesday? Run, boys! We need to reschedule their picnic! Ah, 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 ah. With these powers, he preached the word of restoring Comancheria and expelling the white man, especially the accursed buffalo hunters. It was a message that those who didn't want to go to the reservation wanted to hear. And even with a force of about 250 warriors, the two of them proved surprisingly effective, operating in these post-war years where the United States was struggling to put itself back together. But as we've heard from Medicine Lodge, the US policy had pretty much now become... Either you're a good Indian that lives on a reservation, or a dead one. The weapon that the US sent after Kwana Parker was Ronald Three Fingers Jack McKenzie. Say what you will about American officers, but they all have cool nicknames. Yeah, right? Did they call him Three Fingers because he drank Three Fingers of Gulpin whiskey for breakfast? No, it's because three of his fingers had been damaged during his years at war. Plus, just about mm. every other bit of him. He was known as extremely brave and fair. Yeah, but that sounds like the sort of thing you say about somebody when you're struggling to find something nice to say about them. He was also really not liked by his men. He had a violent temper, which was, you know, probably not helped by the fact he lived in severe and constant pain. But Three Fingers Jack was also a constant pain for the Kahadi, since he pursued them relentlessly no matter where they went. He made a study of Comancheria and the Kahadi homeland in particular. He learned their habits, their watering holes and their safe routes through the harsh prairie. He had done something similar against the Kotsataka Comanche, completely surprising them and killing 52 of them in a surprise attack while taking 124 prisoners. It should probably be noted that their chief shaking hand was meanwhile on a train to Washington to talk peace with the Great Father. And with Mackenzie relentlessly pursuing Kwana and his band, Kwana returned to the old ways of the Namurna hunting buffalo when possible, but otherwise eating nuts, grubs and rodents, and trying to stay out of trouble. So there's going to be one last glorious showdown between Kwana and Mackenzie, right? Nah. In the end, even Kwana Parker and his band of holdouts surrendered. There was just not enough of them to make a difference. When convincing Herman Lehman, a captive-turned-Comanche warrior, to turn himself in, Lehman explained how Kwana had convinced him. 
Kwana told us it was useless for us to fight any longer, for the white people would kill us if we all kept fighting. If we went on the reservation of the Great White Father at Washington would feed us and give us horns and we would in time become like the white man, with lots of good horses and cattle and pretty things to wear. By 1874 there were perhaps 3,000 Comanche, and how were they ever to face off against over 40 million Americans? So the 407 Cahardis walked to nearby Fort Sill to surrender, racing horses and feasting as the children played with prairie chickens, all determined to enjoy their last breaths of free air, except the women who were constantly packing meat. On hearing this, Mackenzie said, I think better of this band than any other in the reserve. I shall let them down as easily as I can. So Kwana's Comanches were allowed to keep their horses and, although pretty awful, reservation life was made a little bit more tolerable by the work of the now remodelled Kwana Parker, who used his popularity and influence to advocate for his people. In fact, he was given the title Principal Chief of the Comanche Nation and became quite the celebrity in his lifetime forming an unlikely friendship with Teddy Roosevelt and even attending the president's inauguration. Roosevelt described Kwana as A good citizen. In his youth a bitter foe of the whites, now painfully teaching his people to travel the white man's stony road. In 1878 he successfully lobbied for his people to go on one last buffalo hunt. The government had let them hunt the cows they were rationed to eat anyway, but it just wasn't the same. T-Rex doesn't want to be fat, he wants to hunt. So when Kwana led his band out to hunt, they were shocked to find that there literally weren't any buffalo left, just a mass of decaying corpses and some bleached bones. Returning to their former home, the canyon of Palo Duro, they found that they were trespassing on someone else's cattle ranch. You can see why Kwana Parker understood what had to be done for his people to survive. There was now no alternative. Kwana Parker died in 1911, having at first done well by leasing reservation land to cattle grazers, but in the meantime opening up his wallet to whoever was in need. He built a big house called Star House, which was generally full of visitors and teepees. His last act was to successfully have the bones of his mother, Cynthia Ann Parker, moved to his home in Oklahoma. He was buried next to her three months after the relocation ceremony on February 3rd, 1911. A huge procession of whites in their Sunday best and Native Americans in buckskins attended his funeral. Conclusion There's this old idea that Spanish conquistadors beat the Inca Empire with technology, and while it's not completely wrong, it's mainly not right either. But this time there's a much stronger case for the demise of Comancheria. After all, the Comanche built their territory on a technological marvel, the horse, becoming perhaps the best light cavalry of their time. And European civilization for a long time had no answer to them. The Spanish were ground down, the Texans had limited success and it was only the demographic brute force, repeating rifles and even howitzers of the United States that finally made the Comanche no match for their adversaries. 
When I first read about Kwana Parker, I imagined his seething resentment against white people would likely have him joining Crazy Horse and the Lakota, Northern Cheyenne and Arafo, the Battle of Little Bighorn. But Kwana was too savvy for that. Although his early life had been wild and free on the prairie, he knew that the Comanche were living on borrowed time. For this episode, I've been reading a lot of The Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn. It's a brilliant book and well worth uh, picking up if you want to learn more about the Comanche. Here's a quote. In the year 1872, the once glorious Comanches were really nothing more than a tiny population of overmatched and outgunned Aboriginals who happened to occupy an absurdly large chunk of the nation's midsection. That they were able to do so in an era of steam engines, transcontinental railroads, nation-spanning telegraph lines and armies capable of greater destruction than the world had ever witnessed was nearly inconceivable. During his time at Star House, Kwana Parker was regularly visited by a nearby family, the Millers. Over dinner, Parker told Miller that white people had forced the Comanche off their land. When Miller asked how this had happened, Parker told Miller to sit on a log which Miller did. Parker then sat next to him and said, move up, which Miller did, and then move up, which Miller did, until Miller fell off the log. Like that, said Kwana. Such was the fate of Comancheria. Great white father would stick to his word I got so high I was a bird I prayed so well I take all your stuff Think it's wrong, but you've got enough. So let's mount up and burn the off roof. Our chief knows some magic, he's bulletproof. You killed him with your brand new gun. How come there's no cows and the buffalo song? I'm on the play. I can't complain. Reservation. Quana Parker says it's time to go Like the Chie and Arafo Says we have to change and grow So let's walk the white man's stony road I'm on the play I can't complain Reservation I went up snake Hello Existers, thank you for listening to the last main episode of Season 4 of Countries That Don't Exist Anymore. We'll be back next time with the last, last episode of this season before we take a nice little break. Do keep in touch with us though at ctdeapod.com, ctdeapod, on the Twitter, on the Facebook. And of course our patron, patron.com forward slash ctdeapod. So join us next time on... Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist Real